And to Matthew chapter 3, 967, page 967 in the Church Bibles uh, from verse 13 we're going to be looking at tonight. And uh, there's also a hand, uh, handout inside the service sheet, so if you want to follow along, um, that would be good also. Uh, now, my first uh, year of doing uh, research at Moore College in Sydney uh, a few years ago, I had a, a little room a little study room that was just off the college library. And to get there every day, I I would have to sort of go up the stairs, uh, through the doors, pass a whole load of books. And and as I passed the books, I would pass the library's collection of books on intimacy and relationships. And, uh, you know, I'd I'd have to say, some of those books looked quite interesting. And um, one of the books which day by day I found my eyes picking out was this one. Uh, It's called Finding the Hero in Your Husband by Juliana Slattery. And you can see on the front cover there's a nice pre-Raphaelite painting of a a knight in shining armor. You probably can just see that. Um, A red-headed damsel in distress. Uh, As we said, I think that the knight here looks slightly more in distress than she is. (laughs) Begad, it's a woman. What am I supposed to do? Something like that. Anyway, I was catching, this book was catching my eye day by day I was, as I was going past it in the library. Um, so I thought I ought to get it out for my wife, Catherine, um, you know, just in case, just in case this wasn't the way she saw me. And uh, actually, it's a surprisingly good book. Uh, but I wonder who of us believes in heroes like that. We laugh all too easily at the idea of a husband being capable of anything much, let alone being a hero. Uh, opening jars, yes. Uh, assembling flat pack furniture, sometimes, not always altogether successfully, uh, but a hero. Uh, it's even easier to laugh at the idea of a hero capable of doing something substantial about the troubles of the world. But it's interesting, the idea doesn't, doesn't want to go away, even if it's forced into fantasy, a uh, little like this, I guess. Uh, I wonder if you're as puzzled as I am by the vast number of high-budget superhero movies that come out almost all the time. It's a very strange phenomenon. Uh, these movies are embarrassingly childish in, in, in some regards. And they're largely pretty tedious. And yet they're somehow quite compelling. People keep wanting to go and see them. Well, I wonder if you've also noticed how important it is in, in such films these days to have the, the, zero, the superhero has some sort of flaw, some sort of character flaw or weakness. It seems we find it hard even to imagine someone capable of solving the problems of the world. Great, well, it's enough of that. Thank you very much. So, heroes, it's all too easy for us to get caught up in both the cynicism on the one hand and the misplaced fantasy on the other. But my aim this evening is that we might push those things aside and engage in some genuine hero worship. Now, the hero we're going to be talking about is, of course, Jesus Christ. And I want to persuade you that in the two episodes we're going to look at tonight, they're rather like the moment in an adventure story when the hero first takes up the challenge to save the day. Now, a lot of stories have that structure to them, and this is that moment in this story. And the two episodes work together. In the baptism of Jesus, Matthew is going to show us Jesus taking on a mandate from his father, a task, a challenge. And this is the challenge to save people from their sins. And in the temptation story, he's going to show us Jesus uniquely able to carry that through to the end. So I'm probably not going to tell you anything you don't already know this evening. 
salvation is through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Uh, but it's the way that Matthew tells us that which is very striking here. And he is going to take us on a little bit of an emotional roller coaster. There are going to be some highs within this as Matthew gets us engaged in this hero worship. Uh, but there are going to be some lows for us as well. As we look on awe at Jesus and Matthew tears down our own pretensions. Especially, I think, and this will be good for us in forward, especially, I think, our middle class pretensions, tears them down and humbles us. However, I do want us to finish this little series on on a positive note tonight. So right at the end, uh, we're going to take a sneak peek view at the end of the gospel to see how it is that we can participate in this amazing thing that Jesus, Jesus has taken on. But first, Jesus gets baptized. And this is the moment when Jesus comes to take on the challenge. Jesus, the Son of God, equipped by the Spirit of God, publicly takes on the mandate from his Father to save his people from their sins. Let me read from verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? Now, you may remember from last week, uh, I was saying that this is both, on the one hand, profoundly surprising, and at first glance, a a very puzzling thing to happen. It's surprising because John has just been telling us, in the the verses just before this, in fact, just been telling us that the one coming after him is going to come in fiery judgment, gathering his people, destroying the wicked. Uh, But here he is, and uh, he doesn't have an axe in his hands. He doesn't have any fire. He doesn't have a a winnowing shovel to separate the people. And this is very puzzling also because we find it so hard to to see why uh, this figure that John has said will be a baptizer and will come and baptize with Holy Spirit and fire wants to get baptized. But I wondered if you noticed as we were reading it uh, that Jesus does actually say why he's doing this. It's it's not because he needs washing from sin himself, as some people have worried. Uh, You can see that they both know that this is in some sense the wrong way round. I need to be baptised by you, says John. Uh, No, the reason for it is there in verse 15. This is what Jesus says. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. And it was then that John consented. And I was saying last week that in Matthew's Gospel, that's a, that's a way of saying that baptising Jesus is somehow necessary to progress God's will, his purpose, his plan for the world. And we already know, actually, at this stage in the Gospel, in broad outline, what that plan is. Uh, you can see it for yourself. If you glance back just over the page, just across the page, in fact, to chapter 1 and verse 21, God wants Jesus to save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus is called Jesus. And that plan, that amazing plan to save people from their sins, begins here at Jesus' baptism as he joins the ranks of those who came to the Jordan confessing their sins and is getting alongside them as they do that, just as he will do with the tax collectors and sinners later in the Gospel And it's that close identification with sinners that's finally going to connect them to the new life and forgiveness that he has come to bring. 
So in the end, this is a very wonderful scene because as Isaiah puts it, Jesus is numbered with the transgressors and he will bear the sin of many, bringing life and blessing into a world that's suffocating under the shadow of death. And in this scene, we do get this something of a sense of celebration as this is all taken on. A sense of celebration in the following verses, even if it's hard to untangle the kind of complex arrangement of images and allusions in these words. First, there's what happens when Jesus comes up out of the water. And it's as if the whole creation bursts out in applause. Uh, We sometimes do that when we have baptisms, uh, don't we? So the person will come out of the water and we all burst out in applause. But here it's the whole creation doing that. Verse 16, the heavens open, breaking that barrier between heaven and earth that we were talking about last time. The Spirit of God descends like a dove and rests upon Jesus. That should perhaps remind us of Genesis chapter 1 where the Spirit hovers like a bird over the waters at the creation of the world. That should then perhaps confirm to us that this is nothing less than the start of a new creation with Jesus now equipped by divine power to give life. And then a voice breaks through the heavens. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And even that one sentence, that one short sentence, is pregnant with wonderful news here. You can see on the handout that God the Father begins much as he does in Psalm 2 and verse 7. You are my Son. Now you can see that if he had continued like that, he would have gone on to talk about the son's rule over the nations and the, the judgment of the wicked that would, that, that would come in the future. But we've already begun to see in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus has come to do something before he rules the nations, before he comes with judgment. So it's very telling that the father doesn't continue like that. He switches instead to repeat what he said in the book of Isaiah. It goes like this, here is my servant whom I have chosen, with whom I, lo- whom I love. With him my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him, which is what we've just seen happen, of course, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. So let's try and put this all together. Matthew is presenting Jesus like this. He is God's son, stepping forward to take from his father the mandate, the special task of the servant. According to the prophecy of Isaiah, written many hundreds of years before this, the servant will take on that task to bear or carry the sins of his people. We've seen Jesus begin it already, baptised alongside those confessing their sins. But that's only the start of it. That task is the centrepiece of a programme, says Isaiah, to take light to the nations, filling the whole world with salvation and justice. And we stop to think about the scale of what's going on here. It should take our breath away. So in other words, this whole scene is a bit like the moment in a, in a medieval tournament when the king asks who is worthy to act as his champion? Who is worthy to do his bidding to restore the honour of his name in the world? And then the whole scene erupts in celebration. Uh, when his own son steps forward. So that's the baptism. Jesus comes on to take 
to take on this challenge, a challenge set by a world steeped in sin, under the shadow of death, and in need of forgiveness. That's not all Matthew wants us to see this evening. He also wants us to see that this is a challenge that only Jesus can take on. And what I hope we're going to see here is that Jesus is worthy to take on this challenge from his Father, and also that he is uniquely worthy. Now, you may already know that this episode is set up to provide a deliberate contrast with the performance of the nation of Israel in its past battle with sin and evil. You see, in the past, very much like Jesus here at the end of the baptism scene, Israel was privileged to hear the voice of God saying, Israel is my firstborn son. Very similar language. And Israel at that time was likewise given a role to perform, a task to perform, a mandate for God's glory in the world. But unlike Jesus, Israel didn't trust God to be a good father in that relationship. We've seen it already in Matthew's account. That whole episode, they ended up in exile, in deportation. Matthew's already drawn our attention to it at the beginning of his gospel. They failed. But it's no good us saying, phew, that's us off the hook. It isn't just about the failure of Israel. Behind Israel's failure lies a deeper failure, the failure of Adam, a deeper conflict, also like this one, in which the whole of humanity is implicated. It's a conflict, of course, in which the deceiver was victorious. So even as we cheer Jesus on in this scene, we should also find this deeply uncomfortable. But the good news is that there is someone capable of doing what we cannot do and at a level we can barely imagine. More than that, there is someone capable of doing the particular task of service that the Father sets Jesus, the task of saving them from their sins. And if you were wondering why this account is, well, so strange, you know, it's a strange account, isn't it? And perhaps you've been struggling with that. I hope you can see that this, that's deliberate. This is a battle taking, on, taking place on a cosmic scale in a league way, way above our normal experience. Now remember what's just happened. Remember that at the end of the baptism scene, the father declared his love for his son and his delight that his son had taken on the task of serving his people. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. But in each of the tests which follow, the devil taunts Jesus with an alternative idea of what it means to be the son of God. One in which he does not trust his father's love. Uh, one in which he serves himself and not others. You can see the first test in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. Jesus does an extraordinary thing. He goes without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Not surprisingly, he is then hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And this would seem to be the seed of doubt that the devil is trying to plant in Jesus' mind. You're starving, he says. Your father cannot love you. Your father 
doesn't love you. Come on. You're the son of God. You don't need your father. You can provide for yourself. So the test in round one of this fight is this. Will Jesus trust his father to provide for him? Or will he trust himself? Now over a thousand years before this, the nation of Israel failed this test. Israel had heard that voice from God saying, Israel is my firstborn son, but the people didn't trust their father. And when hunger hit them in the desert, they grumbled and took for granted the food that God provided. Now the the temptation here is, I think, deliberately strange and extraordinary. I mean, can you imagine what it must feel like after 40 days without food? That is kind of right at the edge of survival, isn't it? Right at the very edge. And yet it's remarkable how some people respond to this. Some people are so unrelentingly middle class and competitive and self-focused that they read about this 40-day fast and they take it as a personal challenge. You search on the web, you'll find examples of this. Uh, Some people talking about it in the same way that runners talk about marathons. Uh, You know, I'm on my fifth, they'll say. I'm thinking about a sixth. How about you? But the tragedy is that the right response to what Jesus does here is pretty much the exact opposite of saying, I can do it. See, I could do a 140-day fast and I would still find myself failing to trust my Heavenly Father in probably a thousand different ways every day. Every time I grumble or I'm anxious about money, for example. Every time I I look at what I I have or, or what I've done and I say to myself, that was my doing. Well done me. But thank God, I am not the hero here. You are not the hero here. Jesus is the hero. And Jesus doesn't just do the fast, he resists the temptation to end it by serving himself. He trusts his Father, and he trusts the Scriptures, which amounts to the same thing. And he quotes God's teaching through Moses after Israel's failure in the desert, saying, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And just remember the context here. Remember remember that the word that has just come from the mouth of God to Jesus is, I love you. And Jesus believes it. Even on the brink of starvation, he will trust and do the word of his Father, the will of his Father. He will trust his Father's love. He will complete the task that he's been given. Time for round two. Verse six. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then, and this was particularly sneaky, the devil quotes from Scripture to the effect that God has promised to look after those who trust him. So this is the seed of doubt that the devil is trying to plant in Jesus' mind now. He's placed him on this highest point of the temple and he's asking Jesus to, to think to himself. He's saying to Jesus, are you sure about your father? Are you sure that you can trust your father with your life? Go on, test him, jump. Look down from this pinnacle and see for yourself. This is a pretty good test, isn't it? A pretty good test. No one could survive this without God's help. 
This will prove his love beyond any doubt. Now the nation of Israel failed this test. Israel is described as testing God in the desert, doubting his care and competence, failing to believe and trust his promises. And boy, do we fail this test too. Every time any of us say or think, that's not right. God must have made a mistake here. It's not fair. I knew he didn't care. I have rights. I have a right to, to life. I have a right to be looked after, at least as well as my peers. And so another crisis hits us. We get depressed, say. We, we lose a loved one. And we're beginning to think, how can I test God's love? How can I provoke God to show that he loves me? But Jesus passed this test. And again, he passed an, ex- an extraordinary particularly extreme version of it. He doesn't hesitate. Verse 7, Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So thank God, I am not the hero here. You are not the hero here. Jesus is the hero. On the brink of falling, Jesus does not budge. He does not need to test his father. Time for the final round. Verse 9. And now they have all the kingdoms of the world spread out before them and the devil plays his trump card. All these I will give you, he says, if you will fall down and worship me. So what is the the temptation here? Well, I guess this is the, the big one. This is about abandoning love for God altogether, abandoning it, and trading it in for something else. Eventually, the nation of Israel failed this test. Even Solomon, most splendid of Israel's kings, was seduced by the apparent splendor of all the kingdoms around him. You know, it was all just too attractive for him, and he abandoned his love for the true God and started worshipping their gods instead. And that began a downward spiral that led to the exile for the nation. But we fail this too. This is what the devil is saying. Sell your love for God and give it to me and I will give you the world. It's horrifying if we stop to think about it. But do we stop? Sometimes the seduction is just, it's just too overwhelming, isn't it? Now I don't know for sure the seductive thing is for you. There are all sorts of possibilities. And I'm sure, but I'm sure there's something. But this is my guess. My guess is that you're probably not seduced by anything very substantial. You're probably not seduced by much. It's very humbling, isn't it, when we stop to think about it. We're seduced by such little things. Jesus is offered the world but we're so often persuaded to exchange our love for God for, well, what? At least, at best, a a brief buzz. Quite often a brief buzz followed by years of disappointment and pain. But thank God again. I am not the hero here. You are not the hero. 
Jesus is the hero. On the brink of receiving as much as we could ever imagine, Jesus does not budge. He will not sell his love for his father for anything. And he will not abandon the task his father has given him. And although the devil leaves him at this point, of course that's not the end of the battle. And in fact, in many ways, it's only the beginning. And uh, later on in the Gospel, we'll find the words of Satan coming again on the lips of Peter. You will never go to the cross, Peter says. The words come again from the mockers at at the cross itself. If you are the Son of God, come down. But time and time again, Jesus doesn't budge. He sees the task through to the end. And he sees it through alone. In other words, even so early in the Gospel, we're seeing Jesus as the champion of champions, the hero of heroes. And if Jesus is my champion, if he is for me, if he is wearing my colours, so to speak, well then, thank God, there is hope after all. Apparently, if you were accused of something serious in medieval times and uh, sentenced to trial by combat, uh, what you would do is this. You'd have to sign up a knight to be your champion and to fight for your cause. Uh, Then as you watch that fight, of course, you would have a personal stake in it. Your life would depend upon the outcome. Uh, Now, the battle that we see played out in Matthew's Gospel is rather like that. Uh, The scene we've just seen is is rather like that. But it's played out on a cosmic scale. And Matthew is saying to us as sinners and failures here tonight, if only you will ask him, if only you will follow him, Jesus is your champion. Now, as we draw to a finish, although it's very bad practice to do this, it's very bad practice to look at the end of a book before you've finished it. And uh, I'm often telling my mother off for doing this. Uh, She persists, sadly. I do want to finish this series on on a positive note by taking a sneaky peek look at this final victory of this hero and champion. Right at the end of the Gospel, Matthew chapter 28 And uh, we'll look at verses uh, 18 to 20. You'll find that on page 1001. Let's look at this together. Matthew 28 and verse 18. Jesus came to the disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that should surprise us, shouldn't it? You see, this is exactly what the devil tempted Jesus with. But now he gets it. But he doesn't get it from the devil. He gets it from his father. His trust in his father has been vindicated. He has completed the task that he was given to do. He has completed that central task as the servant of the Lord. In his death, he has borne the sin of many. And yet it's very striking here at the end of the Gospel, isn't it, that the servant's work, which is the work of bringing light and salvation to the nations, has only just begun. 
The central task has been done, but that is their trigger for something enormous and amazing in the world. And the amazing thing here is, well, it would seem that we can be a part of it. We can be baptised into it. And just like the baptism that we've been looking at uh, tonight, uh, you can see there in verse 19, uh, Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting, isn't it? Just as Jesus' baptism, Father, Son and Spirit are all involved in this wonderful programme of taking light to the nations. So have you been feeling a little deflated tonight as we've gone through this? As, as Matthew has drummed home your failures, take heart. If, like me, you are a baptised Christian here tonight, uh, well, this is our mandate. Jesus says to us, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, leading you as my disciples to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, what an amazing thing for us to, to witness what a a champion, a hero for us to see and witness. And uh, we are awestruck by the task that your son took on for us. We are humbled by him doing what we fail to do. But we are also amazed that we can be a part of what he is doing in all the world. So please help all of us here tonight to get on with taking a part in that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.